Hey, Brian. Talk to me. What do you think is the most confusing thing about the devil? I think most people are probably pretty confused about his identity. And maybe secondly, about how he works in their life. I'm glad you said that because today we're looking at the top eight questions that we get asked about Satan and how he works today. I'm Jared. And I'm Brian. Welcome to the Biblically Speaking Podcast. All right, Brian, so today we're talking about the top eight questions that we get asked about the devil, and I'm going to throw in one that came up in a feed. It was actually a series of shorts that I've been doing lately, as well as a podcast that I did a couple of weeks ago on the Man Up podcast. So I'm going to throw in a ninth question. It's the one we're going to start with, and that is, is Satan a created being? And I suspect this question, because of some of the other lines of questioning that this particular person was asking, might have been a Mormon. And so just this idea that gets espoused sometimes that Satan and Jesus are brothers or are similar in some kind of way. So let's start with that one, buddy. Is Satan a created being? If we wanted to open up the Bible and get all the passages we can find that tell us the origin of Satan, we would find a whole big zero. Bible doesn't exactly tell us much about where Satan came. Uh, we're introduced to him in the garden, and we meet him just a couple of times in the Old Testament. Meet him quite a bit in the New Testament, have a little more information about him there. But truth be told, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about him being a created being. Now, the more interesting thing is to try to make being with an equivalence to Jesus. That in other words, he is some kind of deific, godlike being, which he most certainly is not, or that he has any connection to Jesus, which probably we would have to just say is a blasphemous kind of statement. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is this just goes to show you that a shortage of information never stops anyone from creating details. Exactly. <laughs> That a shortage of information, of biblical contextual historical information, has never stopped anyone from creating a Swede. We tend to lean into kind of some blasphemous ideas when we want to fill in the details. Why wouldn't we want to know he's called our adversary, he's walking about like a roaring lion, he's the accuser of old in Revelation chapter 2? Why wouldn't we want to know more about this figure? And there's all kinds of stories about him from being a, from like I said, some religious belief is that he's the brother of Jesus. Others say he's the brother of Michael the archangel and that they are in constant kind of light and dark opposites of each other. So there's a constant struggle there. So the lack of information has never stopped people from creating what is essentially little more than a good story. Much of what we're going to talk about today are things that people are going to assert that they absolutely know to be true about Satan, but where you would find them, that would be a little bit difficult to prove. And let's start with the big one. We're going to come back to this idea of Satan being a created being in just a moment, because it, I think it does fit with how he relates to Jesus, which is one of the questions that we're going to look at today. But how about what may be the simplest one? Are the devil uh, and Lucifer the same. What a great question. If you were to ask people, they would say, right? I think most people, even many Christians believe that Satan and Lucifer are the same person, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. So if you cracked your Bible open and said, hey, I want to find a little bit more about Lucifer, you're going to have a problem unless you have a King James or New King James, because the word Lucifer isn't going to be found in your Bible. Now, 
If you have a King Mm -hmm. James or a New King James Bible, you'd go over to Isaiah chapter 14, and there you'd find the word Lucifer. It's a Latin word, by the way. It originally applied to the star V, the morning star. Yeah, the morning star. And the reference there to Lucifer as the morning star was actually in the context of that passage about the king of Babylon. And that's the only thing that we find Mm. about that term Lucifer. There's nothing there that indicates that the king of Babylon is a euphemism or an allegory of any kind for Satan. Instead, Isaiah has been condemning the different kings of men that have raised themselves up and glorified themselves. And this king he calls the morning star. Now, what's neat about that morning star language, Jared, I'll throw this one back at you. In the New Testament, who is called the morning star? That's a bit problematic because Jesus is the morning star in the New Testament, and it has to do with his glory and the eternal radiance that he has as opposed to being a name that he's called, per se. Yeah, so it's neat that uh, in the Vulgate translation of the Bible, whenever we read about Jesus, the morning star, the word Lucifer is what's used to identify Jesus there. So it's uh, a great irony that sometime during the Dark Ages, and perhaps even later in the Middle Ages, Lucifer became a nickname for Satan, when the early Mm -hmm. church had no knowledge like that. There was never an idea like that. In fact, you find a lot of Christians that took the name Lucifer because it was was analogous to Jesus himself, so— it certainly was never seen you know, as Satan. It, and what's curious about that is if I was into clickbait titles, I would probably title this episode, Is Jesus Lucifer? Because you get a thousand clicks just right. on the title alone. But it is intriguing. Now, one of the things about, about – I mean, you mentioned Isaiah 14. And Isaiah 14, the only time that Lucifer shows up there is if you are using a King James or New King James. It is a Latin word that is leveraged into a Hebrew text. But the I, it is there. It says, "How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn! You have been cut down to earth, and you have weakened the nations." But if you just go up a few verses, it's a taunt in verse three against the king of Babylon. It's predicting the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, but more than likely, what it's predicting is the fall of Babylon itself, because oftentimes kings, nations were envisioned as their kings. And so to say the king has fallen meant that the nation had fallen. But when you stop and you think about that, there are a couple of interesting things here that, and I don't disagree with anything you said, but we might want to pump the brakes on just a second and think about this because there are, when you think about this idea of Lucifer, the reference being to a nation that is in collapse, it is a nation that is under collapse for its ungodliness, even though God had used them in righteous judgment. And so that's an interesting side to this, and it also fits with this reference in the book of Daniel, that Daniel chapter 10 and verse, let's see, let's, Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 12, this is where an angel is speaking to Daniel. It says, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia, and now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people. So here we have something in the spiritual realm referred to as the prince of Persia. It's able to withstand an angel. 
and that other princes of Persia. And so Michael is coming and assisting this angel in delivering this message to Daniel. So that kingly kind of language, that that royalty language associated with beings of the spiritual realm is not, it's not beyond the pale. You can understand how somebody gets here. Right, Because we see that royalty language used in terms of these beings that are operating in the spiritual realm. But within the context of Isaiah 14, it really doesn't work because it is Israel taking up a taunt or Judah taking up a taunt against Babylon that even though it's enslaved it, one day it's going to fall. So it really doesn't work in that context to be Satan. But you can almost see how people get there, particularly you fast forward to the New Testament and the apostles are coming back to Jesus. And actually, I think it was the 70 that were coming back to Jesus and talking about how he had the power to cast out demons and all of these things. And he said, and I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And you say, oh, I remember that comes out of Isaiah 14. You see, it's the dawn star falling out of heaven. And but it's not really the same thing. And that's one of the dangers, I think, of over-interpreting apocalyptic language when you see it. In, in Isaiah 14, there, there is a, smidge, a smidgen of apocalyptic language there, is when you try to take it and you say, okay, because this is this, then this has to be this, you miss the image here. The image here is something glorious falling out of the heavens, something that seemed like it would always be there because of its power falling, falling out of the heavens and being reduced to nothing. And that was a pretty good indication for the fall of Babylon. I mean, it was the great world power. One of the things I often point out is that when we say we don't know where Satan comes from, I back sure. off and I always say I don't know, not knowing that, a lot of the things that people draw out of passages like Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel or other places that they say, hey, this is talking about Satan. I'll step back and say, I, I just don't know that Satan really has those characteristics. I will say where it becomes troubling or problematic is whenever we begin to assert the idea that somehow Satan hasn't always been under God's control, that somehow Satan has thwarted God's plans for man, or that Satan has in some way tricked God or caused God's desires to be impeded or impaired in some way. And Satan is completely, mm -hmm. the scriptures are revealed to us that Satan is completely under the power of God, that there is nothing that Satan right. has that God cannot withstand. Satan can't rebel against God in such a way that he actually threatens God. That's nonsense. Satan has always been understood to be a being that only acts under the power of God. A great example of that is the book of Job chapter one, when Satan yeah. has to request permission to harm Job and to put Job to the test. And in the book of Luke, we see a similar statement about Peter when Jesus tells Peter that Satan had requested to sift him like wheat. So we need to understand that while we don't have a lot of information about Satan's origin, we know it's not an origin that was contrary to the purpose or will of God. In other words, it wasn't yeah. something that surprises God or suddenly God finds himself in a rebellion that he's not able to control. Satan has always been under God's authority. He has always been yeah. under God's power. And I think that is important for us to remember because even that language that I referred to over in Daniel chapter 10, that is itself a an apocalyptic reference. It's using themes and images that we do understand to give us insight, just a little bit of insight, and really not much because that wasn't the point of Daniel speaking with the angel, but it's giving us a little bit of insight into things that we don't understand. And the point of the Bible is not how do, and this is going to be this can be frustrating to us, but this is one way to 
to discern the difference between truth and error. The point of the Bible is not to give us insight into how things work on the spiritual plane. It's to give us the reassurance that God is always in control of the spiritual plane, and as well as the physical. And so even though we don't understand why things are happening in our physical world the, the way that they are or why they're happening the way that they are, we can know for certain that they are not happening apart from God's will or knowledge. And and we can't always see the end results. And sometimes it's a, that can be a disquieting thought. And there's a lot going on in our world right now that we think, oh, God, why are you letting this happen? We don't understand things the way God does. And that really gets to some of the questions that I think we're trying to answer, not you and I, but mankind, as we're reaching out to try to define the devil. And it really is a matter of trying to compartmentalize him and not compartmentalize him, contain him and put him in a box. That, okay, this is who he is, and I understand him, and he's not as big and bad and scary as I think he is. And part of that comes from the questions that we wrestle with, that if God is always in control, why did he allow the devil to exist? And as a preacher, I can't tell you why God. I have my speculations. I have some logical reasons that he would allow Satan to exist based on what he's trying to get out of his creation and that the devil doing his wicked things can serve God's good ends, but it would be nothing more than educated guess. And we have to admit sometimes that there's an air of arrogance that we're demanding answers from God on these things and that we are that we're being arrogant in the way that we approach them to say this has to be this because now I have my answer. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's the idea of trying to force God to justify himself. That's what we want to do sometimes. Yeah. We want to say if Satan is in the garden, you knew he was in the garden. So God, you need to justify why it's morally right. God doesn't have to justify himself. He doesn't have to yeah. explain himself to us. And that's actually the book of Job. God telling Job, yeah. I don't have to explain myself to you. I'm God. It's the That was one of our community questions a few weeks ago. Right. That, that what does the book of Job teach us? That's right. That's right. So that point is you're exactly right. We're trying to find a sense of justification for God that is ridiculous to do. And God might just laugh at us and say, when you can understand what I understand, then maybe I can explain things to you. Um, but truthfully, and, we don't. And you know, that's one of the things that when you stop and you catch it, Brian, there's a thought here. In fact, I talked about this, uh, it was last Sunday morning in the sermon. It was called A Question for Eternity, that I talked about this thought that reveals itself as you really start looking at who God is and why God created us that he created us to trust him, he created us to do his will, he created us to honor him, he created us to give us an eternal salvation. But And I asked people when I got to the end of the sermon, I said, do you see this one thought that can forever change your relationship with God? And it's on the screen several times, and it was the thought that he created us. And we forget that. God doesn't owe us a justification, and more than likely, as he tells Job, you wouldn't understand the justification if I gave it to you. But we are a created being. Now, that's not saying God is sovereign, he can do whatever he wants, and I just need to shut up and deal with it. It's just saying there's more going on here than we really ever could comprehend or understand because I am a created being, and I've been created for a purpose, and God knows how to deliver me to that purpose. And one of the purposes that he's trying to deliver me to is an eternal salvation. And whatever purpose Satan serves, it, he is serving that purpose in some kind of way. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, we do get some hints of that sometimes. We get hints like we mentioned Job, <clears throat> where God uses Satan to to mm -hmm. put Job to the test. I was like at the end of the book of First Kings, whenever Micaiah the prophet is describing the false spirit that came 
and deceive the prophets so that Ahab would go forth into battle. And he talks about God calling up and asking the spirits to, to deceive and a deceiving spirit going it. Maybe the deceiving spirit is Satan. The point is, though, that God is using these things, and we've seen God use these to put things to the test. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus tempted in the wilderness. The scriptures seem to indicate that Satan was permitted to do that. And there's a sense where we yeah. see God using Satan for those ends and those means. Again, to be very clear, always under his authority, always within the parameters that he has specified. And that's an important thing I think we want to read. This leads to a question that's not on the sheet, but it is one. And I don't know why I didn't think of to add this one because it would have made it a great ninth question. But let's go ahead and touch on it for just a second before we move on to the next one. And that is, how do we know that Satan isn't just an allegory? That's one that you hear a lot, right? Satan is just an allegory for wickedness. That How do we know from Scripture that Satan is not just an allegory? So about five years ago, the Church of England made their official position that Satan was just an allegory, that he was just a yeah. uh, characteristic of sin. They've made a lot of official positions over the last five years, and not many of them were good. Yeah, so. yeah, they all tend to be uh, problematic for sure. So is Satan more than an allegory? Of course, we want to understand that when we read a passage like Genesis chapter 3, that passage will be quoted to us repeatedly in the New Testament as a specific historical event, not as not as an allegory, uh, that it was something that actually happened. Paul will point to it and say, this is why the church operates the way it does, because of that temptation of Eve and then Adam. And the, it, later on in the book of Revelation, the serpent is identified clearly as Satan. And it's meant to be understood as not an allegorical event, but a historical event, a real event that actually happened. It's pretty wild, for sure. But no more wild than just about anything that goes on in the world around us. So I don't think we really should be too surprised that it could, as the scriptures describe it. So the point is, we're meant to see Satan as a literal personality. In other words, a person, an identifiable person who yeah. thinks, who plans, who devises, who has means, who has servants, who has angels. These are different things the scriptures tell us about Satan. And so we would understand that he has his messengers, his his disciples, and that these are all things that point to him as a literal personality, as a literal being with yeah. person nature. Absolutely. All right. I got to put you on the spot twice, so I'm going to let you throw the, the next one back at me here. All right, Jared. So the question I'm right. going to drop we, at you. Here we go. I'm in the hot seat. You're in the hot seat now. That's right. What power does Satan have? Okay. Now, first, I need to ask about the format before I answer this. Is this like uh, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire where I've got some lifelines? Or maybe you have to answer it in the form of a question. That would uh, be another tough one. <laughs> oh, that would be easy. I'd just punt it back to you and yeah. say, hey, Brian. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But I was going to use phone a friend to call you up. That's an interesting. That's an interesting question, because I, I a lot of what we know about what the devil is able to do, or a lot of what we think we know about what the devil is able to do, is based not out of Bible, but out of sort of morality tales, and and even just outright fiction. And so, if you really look at what the Bible says that he does. In Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser. He's called the one who deceives the whole world. And his powers really are to make no, I'm not belittling him in any way, but he is, those are his powers, that he can deceive and he can accuse. And that's not to say that he can't, he cannot use those powers to great effect. 
that he can't cause hardship and difficulty to happen in our lives. But it basically boils down into deceiving us to act in certain ways or others to act against us in certain ways or to make accusation against us, which would accusation in the day of judgment. Now, There are times in Scripture where the devil seems to have a lot more power, that if you look in, you know, you and I have talked about the division of Revelation before and how I think the first half of the book is probably about, and we differ a little on this, but not a big deal, that I think the first half of the book is, the first 11 chapters is a retrospective on the fall of Jerusalem, past tense, to to the writing of the book. Chapter 12 is a reboot with the telling of the gospel in the form of the woman having the child and the dragon trying to eat the child. And so you're seeing sort of the spiritual reality behind the the gospel's emergence into the world and Jesus coming into the world. And then the rest of the book is persecution against the early church. And he did have some power to persecute the early church. He was using false miracles and signs and things like that to deceive people. Now, that's not implying that he could actually do miracles, but that they were called lying wonders. They were themselves a form of deception. Now, there were when demonic power was loose on the earth, and it. but we see from Scripture that was for a time. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus encounters the man who is plagued with many demons in legion. And he says in verse 7, what business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? So this demon is recognizing who Jesus is here and calling him God and son of God. And I implore you by God, which is interesting, the demon is invoking the name of God to get Jesus to stop, do not torment me. Now what's interesting about that is if you go over to Matthew's account of this, Matthew includes an extra little bit of information here. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Meaning that whatever the demon control and demon influence and possession and things like that were on the earth, they were for a limited time that was around the time that Jesus was walking on earth. And we know from the book of Acts, while the during the first century, while there were still miraculous gifts and things like that, that there was a limited time that those things were allowed to happen. What, but what's interesting is you see a lot of that today. There's a lot of, of really intelligent people. I was thinking about, there's a guy named Michael Knowles, who's a political commentator, who did a whole episode just a few weeks ago on a Roman Catholic priest who claimed to have cast out demons and seen women walking up walls and things like that. And there's no evidence for it. I'm thinking if I'm seeing a woman walk up a wall, the first thing I'm going to do is get out my iPhone and record it. But there, there's never any evidence of that. There's never any indication that that's still a proof, rather, that's still going on. And when somebody does submit some kind of proof, it's always a fakery or something of that nature. But in the first century, this is real, that this is going on. And Jesus, and this goes back to what you were saying about this never being beyond God's control, Satan never has a power at his disposal that God cannot undo. And that even men acting on behalf of the Holy Spirit are able to undo this. As I referenced a while ago, the passage in Luke 10 about the 70 returning, so not even just the apostles, but the 70 returning from this mission of communicating that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and they needed to repent, that they're telling Jesus that even the demons were subject to him, and they said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning, meaning that shows you how limited a power Satan really does have 
beyond this ability to accuse and to deceive. Now, that's pretty much my answer on what the devil is able to do. Now, there, a lot can be done with accusing and deceiving, but let me open it up to you. What do you got on his abilities? I will say that power of deception that might have been more pronounced in the first century than today. Now, First Thessalonians sure. or Second Thessalonians 2 talks about the delusion that can still come, but I do oh, think, yeah. I think you're right. And I think Acts 16 might be the example of you being right. So in Acts 16... Oh, wait, there's a biblical example of me being right? Sweet! <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said it that way, huh? So Acts 16, yeah. <laughs> you've got the girl... Oh, that's going to my head. ...who is possessed by a... And it's called a spirit of a soothsayer. So she has the ability in some way to forecast the future. Something supernatural, for sure. Mm. Now, particularly the Greek word there indicates it's the spirit of Pythios, which was another name for Apollos. So there is a demonic spirit that is mm. in some way indicating that it's a Greek god and it's predicting the future. So that might be a good example of Satan using a power to deceive by a lie by the possession of this. A couple of yeah. things though, that I wanted to jump out and throw at. Number one, Everything you describe Satan as, I like to summarize by saying Satan is like a prosecutor in a courtroom today. He can make mm -hmm. accusation. He can. Well, that fits. He's a lawyer. Yeah, that's right. That, of course, I'm about to say Jesus is a lawyer too in 1 John 2 and verse 4. Oh, no. Okay. I withdraw He's the out. joke. I withdraw <laughs> the joke, advocate. counselor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I see Satan as a prosecutor. I used to work for a prosecutor's office. One thing a prosecutor mm -hmm. can do is they can. They can tempt people. An uh, undercover police detective can offer to sell someone in narcotics in order to, to stimulate the thing that, that it's believed that somebody was going to do. And that's a legitimate means to obtain a conviction for somebody. So the point is Satan has an authority like that. He has a, an authority given by God to tempt and to test and to make accusation for those who are false. But typically, when somebody asks me, what is Satan's power? I go over to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. There's a pretty simple statement here that I've often said sums it all. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise mm -hmm. shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, yes. the devil. So I always like to say, yeah. Satan's power is the power of death. Now, that doesn't mean he has the power to kill. Remember, like with Job, he had to ask God, and God said, no, you can't do it. He has the power right. of death. Now, the power of death in 1 Corinthians 15 is spoken of as the power of sin. It's the idea that when we sin, Satan takes control of us. His chief power is that he owns those who are in sin. That's why I love Jesus saying, I'm here to bind the strong man. He says, you got to bind the strong man before you can plunder his goods. Yeah. Jesus, why I love that analogy is in that story, Jesus is saying, I'm like a thief. I'm going to steal things that belong to Satan. We who sin are Satan's possessions. That's his greatest power is that he owns those of us who are in sin. And that well, and power exactly, is overcome by Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in, in John chapter 12 when he talks about casting down the ruler of this age. Yes. That, and what are we told in First John? That the devil, the, wor the whole world is under the sway of the devil or under the control of Satan. That's not saying that he has demonic control, but if you are... If you are in sin and you are serving sin and you're not trying to come out of sin, then you're under the control of the devil, that he can use you as an instrument because he knows how to use you. You think about that, you think about, you use that idea of, of binding the strong man, that 
just reminded me of Ephesians chapter 4 when it said that he, uh, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So here you have Jesus coming in as this victorious king, and what did he do? He took the devil captive. He destroyed his ability to bind us in sin. He took him from being this great adversary to into a form of captivity, which I think is a reference to the binding of Satan in Revelation, mm-hmm. not to say that Satan can't operate in the world for a thousand years, but his power is under control. He can't do and hold people in death. And then you have that Jesus has replaced his tyrannical, the, the tyrannical reign of Satan by giving gifts like salvation and grace to men and freedom from sin. So I, I, the devil's power, while being able to be used to great effect, is fairly limited. It's never beyond God's control or Jesus's control or even the control of the apostles and those to whom it had been imparted to have spiritual gifts in the first century. I think so. One, let's move on. Oh, I was going to say. Ahead. I think one important idea that comes out of that then is a lot of times we give Satan way too much power. Oh, yeah. J- James chapter one says, "Where does the desire to sin come from? Comes from within. Comes from us. We want to say the devil made me do it, but that's not very common in the Bible." The Bible says most of the time we are the source of our temptations. It's our desires yeah. and our lusts that we're not controlling that give birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, give, turns to death. And there Satan has his power over us. But truthfully, yeah. the choice to sin has never been Satan's. It's always been ours. Yeah. Now, I do think he is instrumental in putting those temptations in front of us, but he cannot make us do them. Yeah. So let's switch over your turn in the hot seat. And this question comes from a first time, first time questioner, long time listener, let's say. No, I'm kidding. It's, are you familiar with Milton? As in the writer? Yeah, as in the writer. As in the writer. Yes, I am. Okay. He famously said on behalf of the devil, it is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Is the devil ruling in hell, Brian? Yeah, that's a good question. I bet most people think that way, right? But it's an interesting idea. I think most people do think that the devil sits on a throne in hell. Yeah, Dante's Inferno gives us that image too. I think a lot of people get their imagery about hell in that way. What does the Bible say? And of course, the Bible tells us a lot about this one. The Bible says, and we've actually quoted a couple of those passages, that the devil is here now. In this world, we already mentioned John 12 and verse 31, where Satan is called the ruler of this world. Paul will call him the God of the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. We're told that he's our adversary that walks about us like a roaring lion. Back in the mm-hmm. book of Job, when God meets with Satan, he asks him where he's been. He's been walking to and fro upon the earth. The world is where Satan dwells now. This is where his place is, and this is his location of his power. The only Mm -hmm. time where it's mentioned about his being in hell is at at the end of Revelation, when it says at the time of judgment, Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So Satan isn't going to be in hell until Jesus returns. Until that time, he's here. He's about in this world, walking to and fro, looking for those that he might deceive or tempt. Great Mm -hmm. question. Is Satan in hell? Simple answer. Firm answer from the Bible. No, no, he's not. Yeah. When he will be in hell, he won't be ruling there. I think that this sort of filters in through a lot of, excuse the quotes here, quote unquote, Christian literature. Even C.S. Lewis embraced this idea of Satan ruling in hell. If you think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the, the white queen was a ruling queen sitting on a throne. And that's just not how 
Satan is depicted. And like you said, Milton and Dante's Inferno and all of these depictions that uh, the idea that Satan rebelled against God and led an army of angels, I think in Milton's Paradise Lost, it was because he was jealous of the sexual relationship between Adam and Eve or something like that. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've read the Cliff Notes version, and I didn't even read that fully, just skimmed it. But the just this whole idea that Satan is a ruler of some kind beyond beyond those who are willingly surrendering themselves to sin. And then again, there's also angels that are under his charge because the devil and his angels. But hell is a place that is con- that is prepared to contain the devil. That, that's what Jesus says, that he casts in Matthew 25 in that judgment scene, depart from me and go into darkness into it's prepared for the devil and his angels. That hell is the judgment that God prepared for Satan and for the angels that would follow him. And again, that's not to say that there was any kind of heavenly rebellion that God had to fight to put down and almost wasn't able to. And All of that is man's devising, but hell is not a place of ruling for the devil, and it's not a place where he exists now, that the devil is operating in our world today. All right, my turn on the seat, Brian. What you got? Yeah, I'm wondering here about devil. I know that some people would look at the devil as being an equal opposite to Jesus. What do you think about that? Yes. Yeah, this is going to run a couple of our questions together, and so this may shorten your answer on the next one. But this comes from us really not understanding what the Antichrist is. I actually am going to do a video on this channel about the Antichrist. I've seen so many videos lately and so many questions lately about when is the Antichrist going to be revealed. Well, the Antichrist was revealed in 1 John, and that there isn't just one. There are many Antichrists. And they have all surrendered to the spirit of the Antichrist, which is are – you, are you ready for this, guys? This is big-time conspiracy stuff. I need you to lean way into wherever you're listening to the podcast. I don't want this to get out too much. This is like secret stuff. The Antichrist are people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And they used to profess that he did. I know. That's shocking, right? Can you imagine that? It is not a power position. It is a false doctrine. And we're going to get into that more in the next question. But this whole idea has conflated several different things. It's combined Satan with this idea of the Antichrist, with this idea of the man of lawlessness that Brian already mentioned once out of Second Thessalonians 2, have all coalesced into this one big amalgam because Hollywood does not do very good biblical research. I know this will surprise you. But it surprised me when they opened the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones and it was the original Ten Commandments that Moses shattered and not the ones that he brought down the second time that were in the Ark. It surprised me that that they would get that wrong. But Hollywood does not do very good biblical research. And there is no passage in the Bible that says Satan is the equal opposite of Jesus. Now, he is the opposite in one sense, that Jesus is our advocate and Satan is our accuser, but he is not the equal of Jesus. In fact, the last temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, where he's taken up to the high mountain and the devil tells him, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus, and that's something that was to some degree in the devil's purview to be able to do, because we've already said that men that are under sin are under the control of the devil. And yet Jesus refutes that by saying, no, you should only worship God because that's what's written. 
And so Satan did not have the power to compel Jesus to do things. Satan did not have the power to control. You hear sometimes people will say when they have a a bad accident on the, the way to work, the devil was really working to try to stop me today or something of that nature. The devil does not control the weather. He does not control... He does not control the timing of accidents and things like that. The devil is, his power is in deception and in accusation. And so he is not the equal opposite of Jesus. What do you got? Yeah, great stuff. I think we point out that some of this kind of thinking, that somehow Jesus and Satan are equal, I have to think that maybe some of this comes from some false doctrine. I think Mormonism, in part, tells that story almost exactly like that to some degree, and so I think there's yeah. that sense. Gnosticism liked ideas like that because it liked to elevate Satan and to create in him a caricature of behavior. Even pre-Gnostic writings like the Book of Enoch and stuff wanted to give Satan a little more oomph than he. This idea has been around a yeah. while. Yeah, it really has. And some of that idea, like in Jude, with Michael and Satan contending over the body of Moses— that some of that was leaned into by the Bible, not to say that it was accurate, but it was saying, hey, here's an example that you've heard about that that would be exactly what we're talking about. But there is no indication. Gee, Satan is never called. Now, he shows up on a day in Job when the sons of God are presenting themselves. But there are lots of things that are called the sons of God. Men are called the sons of God at one point. That's not the same thing. That's not the same way that Jesus is called the son of God in that exclusive sense by Peter in Matthew 16, 16, that the idea of being the son of God and a son of God are two totally different things. That's one of the things that people have thrown at me recently in some recent comments is the son of God is a term of endearment that God uses. Son of God, yes. Sometimes, I mean, Jesus even alludes to that in John chapter, John chapter 10, when he's, they're going to stone him for saying he's the son of God. Well, shouldn't you be sons of God? Hey, is that what you should be striving to be? But it's not the same thing, and it's not that exclusivity. And the devil does not have that exclusivity of being a son of God or an equal of God or an equal of Jesus. He isn't God. He is He is materially the best that we could say is that he might be, and I don't want to step on this because we're going to get to this in a second, he might be the same stuff as angels, or he might be something totally different that we don't even understand. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. But that leads us right into this next question. Are the devil and the Antichrist the same thing? I think I probably answered that one. but You did. You it's not fair to ask me a question. I stole your answer. thunder. Yeah. So, you well, know, yeah. that term Antichrist is one that hops up people. And, of course, if you saw the movie The Omen back in the 60s and yeah. 70s, in that movie, the Antichrist is Satan. Satan being mm-hmm. born on the earth, and he was the Antichrist. But as we've already said... The I Ant- think it was great that he was a politician. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Later on, it was the Omen 3. <laughs> he was the son of a politician. I've only... I've never even seen the movie. I yeah. just know bits about it. But he was the son of a politician destined to be a politician. Yeah. You know what? I think, honestly, a lot of people probably draw their biblical knowledge of this whole subject from a movie like that, which is ridiculous. But I think... Mm-hmm. Um, of course, as you said, the Antichrist... And there's not one Antichrist. There are Antichrists. They've been around for 2,000 years. People that have turned against Christ, anti-Christ, not a deep idea there. And that, as you mentioned already, 1 John chapter 2, John says, hey, there's lots of Antichrists. They're already, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty generic idea. But Antichrists specifically speak to those who either A, have fallen away, or B, speak against the doctrine of Christ. Certainly not, certainly not the devil in the context of anything in the Bible. 
Yeah, and they're even referenced in Second John because Second John is a Cliff's Notes version of First John, but they're not the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, which sounds more like a Roman emperor. Some people say it sounds like the Pope, but it's it sounds like a Roman emperor who elevates himself to the status of a god, and that they're not Satan. Let me ask you a bonus question since I stepped on that one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. I can whistle Jeopardy. All right. Or oh, I want that phone-in call. I want to call somebody for help. Okay, you want that phone-in call? Okay, yeah. here it is. This is an off-the-sheet question. This is a Biblically Speaking Podcast bonus question. All right. Brian, what does the Antichrist do in the book of Revelation? That's tough to answer since the Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. What do you mean he's not mentioned in the book of Revelation? Yeah. He's right there with the dragon, isn't he? And the beast and the yeah. other beast. Yeah, he's not mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's kind of interesting. While both John wrote 1 John, 2 John, and Revelation, he's not a part of the vision of the future and the things that were going on. So the Antichrist, again, doesn't have, you've already said it, doesn't have a world power, doesn't have any kind of behavior like that. Antichrists are just people that turn away from God. But Stephen King said so. I know. Again, it was a great movie, huh? But it wasn't the Bible. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that's one of the – I think that's where you start to see cognitive dissonance with people who who really don't want to know what Revelation is about. They want to believe it's about something scary, but they don't really want to know what it's about because yeah. they, they can't deal with this idea of, okay – that he, this antichrist that's supposed to be this end time thing. And it's amazing how many guys that when you hear them, and I wouldn't agree with a lot of what they teach, but their biblical exegesis is just spot on. There's several guys on YouTube that I follow who do really good biblical exegesis, and then they swerve into some kind of false doctrine, and it's really sad. But how many of them anticipate a coming antichrist? And it's like, Why? You're conflating the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, who's clearly a world power, with the antichrists who are believers who have forsaken the truth about Jesus with something that's not even in the book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah. It's very confusing that even people that are really knowledgeable about the Bible don't understand that. Yeah. All right. So my turn on the hot seat. What you got for me? Yeah. So let me throw this one at you. We talk about the devil. I know we've hinted at this one, so I'm giving you an easy one. I'm throwing you a softball here. Can... Okay. Can the devil make me do things against my will? All right. Okay. I'm going to have to quote the great theologian Yosemite Sam. That rabbit made me do it. The devil made me do it. (laughs) No, the devil cannot make us do things against our will. There was a time, and we don't understand how demon possession work, except there are some verses that indicate that you had to be agreeable or amenable to it at least or be spiritually empty and not ha- not be filled up with a love of God for any kind of demon possession to take place in the first century. But the devil cannot make you do things against your will. Now, that's not to say that he isn't able to deceive others into making things very difficult if you don't change your will. But he cannot take control of you and do things against your will. You anything you want to add to that? I think our best example goes back to Genesis 3 and the garden. And here is Satan. He points at the fruit. He tells her all sorts of lies and different things about the fruit. But in the end, he's gone Mm -hmm. when she makes the decision to eat it. He's gone when Adam makes the decision to eat it because he'd already done it. His job is to confuse and to obscure the truth. He's the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. That's what his tools are. But he has no power to control our will. 
or to compel us to do something uh, against our will. And Adam and Eve are a great yeah. example. Now, there is something that I want to talk about because demon possession is becoming – in fact, I think we're going to do a whole episode on demon possession. It'll be a short episode, but I think it'll be worth talking about. Yeah, I'll run that by you after the show because I want to get your input as a co-host. But the I, I do want to reference something that Jesus says in Matthew 12 about demon possession and can Satan take control of someone and can a demon physically control someone. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. It says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through the waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. So it's just going through the world. Like you said, the devil is operating in the world. And then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. And so what he's saying is that 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 may not even be talking – I want to be very careful about how I say this – but that may not be talking about literal demon possession. That may just be talking about when you come out of your sin that it's easy to fall back into it if you don't fill yourself up with something spiritually. But if that is talking about literal demon possession and Jesus is not using that as an allegory, therefore – because he talks about the wicked generation, and that's what this has all been about is the wickedness of this generation, that they would that they weren't going to receive the sign and that that you could know them by the fruit and all the things that they were doing. They were trying to divide a house and say that Jesus was doing the things of God by the power of the devil. But if that is talking about a literal indwelling of a demonic spirit or a devil, that it is it indicates that the reason why it's able to come back in is that a purpose a person hasn't been filled up with something good. And so again, that would even in the first century, the devil had very limited control to possess people, it would seem. And one thing one thing we might throw out there too is I'm not sure that Jared, you grab me and cut this if I'm wrong. But there's no indication okay. anywhere in the scripture that the devil himself personally ever possessed anybody. Although there is a statement about Judas and that the devil yeah. entered to him to promote his deception. Again, not necessarily the same thing as a demonic possession. So we might throw that yeah. out there too. That statement about Judas was the only one I could think of. Yeah. And it might indicate that Satan saw, I would say one of two things. It, indicate that, it indicated that Satan saw a real opportunity here and he wanted to be the hand on the lever kind of thing. Or it's not talking about demonic influence. It's just talking about the tempting. And what's interesting is it said that it entered his heart. And that's mm-hmm. not typically the language associated with literal, uh, with any kind of literal demon possession in the first century. Yeah. All right, so whose turn on the seat is it? Uh, oh, it's you yours. What. Give it to what me. What role, Brian, does Satan have in end-time prophecy? End-time prophecy. To be, he's supposed to be coming, Gog and Magog, deceiving them against that heavenly city. Talk to us about it. Yeah, so end-time prophecy. That's a tough thing in and of itself. If we want to clarify what so the, many episodes yeah, on one question. You're right, because if we wanted to define end times in the scriptures, the last days are the days that began on the day of Pentecost. We've been in the last days ever since. So we say the Bible doesn't really use those terms the way a lot of people do today, but the Bible does talk about the end of time, and it does give us a yes. lot of references about that. So this is a trickier question than it seems at first. Because for one thing, I might go to say some of the things Jesus said in the Gospels. That's why I made it an odd number question. Yeah. Oh, I was tricked. <laughs> I was tricked. You were deceived. I was oh, deceived. Oh, wait, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. What does that make you? Let's not talk about that. 
Nice. Jesus says of the last day and hour, there's no warning, no sign, nothing to give it. So, of course, yeah. that would take Satan's activity out of it. But I will say there's a strange statement in Revelation 20, which seems to be a reference to those times at the end. And it speaks about, and let me just go over there for a second and we can look at that passage. And I'm, right. and ironically, I'm, I'm going to put to, it up on the screen so our our audience can see it too. Oh, thank you. On YouTube. Yeah. The, there's a statement that says that verse seven, at the end of the thousand years, when the thousand years have expired, Satan is released from his prison. We mm -hmm. understand that the thousand years is, the, is Christ reigning on the earth. He reigned... Since the time that he said, uh, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew chapter 28. He's right. been reigning all that time. So a thousand years, no problem, because the Bible tells us thousand years is figurative. That's an easy to see. But at the end of that mm -hmm. time, Satan is released from his prison. Now, at first, a lot of people think, well, does that mean being released? What can he do? But here's the danger I think we have to understand about this passage, is that, first of all, Satan being bound speaks to his authority over believers, over the righteous. That's what Revelation has been all about, that the accuser of the brethren yes. is cast down and that his power, his possessions, who are the righteous, are his. So it doesn't actually make sense to say that Satan is being unbound from things that Jesus had bound him up for before. In other words, Satan right. doesn't suddenly get power over Christians again. Satan doesn't suddenly have the power to, to own us as the power of death. He isn't giving that power back. So it's not as though God is returning that power to him. So we have to step back and say, that's probably not what's being said here. At the same time, there's nothing about Satan's release that would manifest the end of time. In other words, Jesus said specifically, repeatedly, no clue. You're not going to know what's about to happen. It's going to be a surprise. Right. You're going to... So there's nothing about Satan's release that would be manifested to be seen. So what we might talk about here is not so much the idea that the Bible is saying that, that right before Jesus returns, Satan's going to have one last act, but Satan probably always mm -hmm. has a last act. He always is probably trying to, to draw forth those who he can get his power back over, and that this may not be a speech about Satan's specific power at the end of time, but that Satan will constantly, throughout the ends of time, which we've been in for 2,000 years, Satan will constantly have the ability to set, to unbind or to reacquire those who fall into sin. So it might be said that could be the point here. But let's just say for sure what it doesn't mean. doesn't mean there's some kind of sign we can look for of, of Satan's power back right. on earth. It doesn't mean that Satan has a power over Christians. So the end of time, Satan's reference to that really can't be very much since we already know pretty pretty straightforward there'll be no warning of any and the only thing that i would add to that is that and this could apply i think individually as you've already mentioned but it also could apply to collectively that if you look at verse 8 of chapter 20 it says and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth and that's where you get this illustration of gog and magog these world powers that should be against each other, but they're coalescing into one force, and that is that the devil does seem to be using the kingdoms of men to oppose and oppress those who are in Christ to try to separate them from that. And that's about as far as you can really go with that. And there have been times in history where you can say, it really feels like the devil is behind what's going on here. And you think about, you can see things in our culture right now 
where you can see just the institutionalizing, not institutionalizing, the enshrining of sin as a constitutional right in our country. I'm talking, I'm thinking about abortion. I'm thinking about all the things that are weighing in on like the gender confusion debate and stuff like that is enshrining sin as liberty, that the devil is behind that. But that's that doesn't mean that you're on a countdown clock to the end of time. It's just saying these kinds of things are going to happen. And what you're really supposed to do is fast forward and see that the end of this, no matter how bad the oppression gets, is that everything is just tossed into the lake of fire. It's just, it does, it's not going to withstand the power of Jesus. And we can look at it throughout history, I think, and see many times where nations were compelled, and I do think it was satanic, but again, that's an educated guess, but nations mm-hmm. went against Christians and those nations are gone. You know, the yeah. Soviet Union is a great example, a nation that died in our lifetime, yeah. was a nation that warred against Christ, warred against Christians as a Gog and Magog, and it's the fire of God has consumed it. It's gone. And I think any nation yeah. that seeks to drive the worshipers of, to destroy them they're going to perish the same way. And it's happened all throughout time. And I think that's why the end of Revelation, you have to be careful, even though I do think that it is specifically to those first century readers about Rome. I think you have to be careful confining it to just that. I think it is a glimpse behind the curtain. I say I think because it's apocalyptic language. It is a glimpse behind the curtain to see the spiritual realities at work in our world in that one instance, and that we should be able to take them and apply them to our world. That just like you said, that if a nation is rising up and attacking the people of God. God's going to tolerate it for a while because he's going to give the opportunity to repent. But if you don't if you don't repent from that, then eventually that nation is humbled or destroyed. Yeah, very much. All right. All right. My turn on the hot seat. All right. So let me wrap this up with a question here. All we've really talked about is how many things that we don't really get about Satan and what people think and what they're jumbled up about in their mind. So that's the last mm-hmm. question. Is there so much confusion about Satan? Okay, this is one we're not usually asked. This is so much, I think, one that we ask ourselves a lot, and it gets tossed around between preachers. And it goes back to something that you and I have both said, not exactly the same way, but in our own way, that in some ways it's trying to contain the devil in a box that I can comprehend. The imagery in 1 Peter 5, that the devil's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, we we struggle with that imagery. I've taught a sermon before I actually went and looked at what that idea of a roaring lion might be, because it mean it seems like it's saying the devil is really super powerful. A lion that actually walks about roaring is actually a lion that's going hungry. And it's lions are typically very stealthy and sneaky. But a roaring lion, if you're just walking about roaring, it's typically a lion that's going hungry and it's older and weaker. And you compare that with Jesus being the lion of Judah, and I've got a whole sermon on which which is your lion? The one that's trying to devour you or the one that died to save you. And I think we have a lot of confusion with the imagery of Satan because we really want him to be a bedtime story. We really want him to be the caricature of the little guy with the pitchfork on the left shoulder who says, just do bad things. It's okay. We don't like the idea of a spiritual entity out there in the world who is trying to draw us into eternal damnation in hell. And the reality of it is that is exactly what he is. And I want to go, and I hope I'm not butchering this guy's name, but there's a, I believe he was a French poet and theologian. His name was Charles Baudelaire or Baudelaire. And his, he famously said 
that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince us, or it may have been the greatest lie the devil ever told, was to convince us that he did not exist. The devil doesn't want credit for what he does. He definitely wants us confused about how he operates. He would love nothing more than for us to believe that when I sin, that I had no control over it and he made me do it. He will gladly take credit for that because it keeps me from evaluating my relationship with Jesus. And so I think there's a lot of misinformation about Satan because demonic powers make for interesting movies that, I mean, if you even look sort of the recent Marvel arc through Endgame, the Thanos character was, if you, I learned that if you read the comics, he was in love with death a character that was courting death as an entity. Think about that. The Bible describes Satan as the master of death. And we've all been in love with this idea of a spiritual force that needs a powerful, otherworldly, supernatural, almost superhero kind of answer. And what we do is we create a caricature of someone who is actually very real, who is very intent on destroying us, And then there's the other side that almost wants to make him a sympathetic figure, that he just wanted to live his life kind of thing, and here is God casting him out for that. because And so he's this outcast kind of anti-hero in the minds of some people. And all of this adds to some confusion about Satan, you know, that a lot of people want to know, is Satan an angelic being? I don't know. I know that he has angels, but angels only means messengers. I don't know if they're angels in the same way that God's angels are angels. But he has messengers that, you know, that we take shorthand a lot of times and make assumption where the Bible doesn't really give us license to make assumption. And I think that's primarily why there's so much confusion. What about you? How did I do with that answer? I like it. I thought maybe you were just going to go to the idea that Satan is the author of confusion. No, the scriptures speak about God not being the author. That might have been a better answer. But (laughs) that Satan is. And as you said, Satan's great. It is a valid point to say Satan's great ability to hide himself is perhaps his his most profound action that he can, and not make people not believe in him, but make people not, his ideas, his logic, his reasoning. And the Bible Mm -hmm. speaks about the doctrines of demons or demonic wisdom. These are things that people reason with every day. And Satan, if Satan was a character, if he was some evil looking monster that we could vision somehow, and when he gave us a bad idea, we'd say, oh, wow, that's terrible. We could turn away, but Satan is not. Satan, Satan comes across as the very reasonable, very reasonable conversation with Eve in the garden where he says, hey, maybe that's not true. Maybe you're being tricked. All these different logics that people apply every day. We don't want to believe that's Satan. Because it sounds so reasonable, and yet here is Satan and this confusion that he sows because that's his victory. Yes, and I think that's an important reality that a lot of times we it would be so much easier if Satan did appear to us on goat legs with a goat head and a man's chest and things like that and stand there saying, hey, sell your soul to me in a Faust kind of way, but... More often than not, when I've seen him, he looks like me looking back from the mirror, contemplating something that I know I shouldn't be doing. And that's the reality of it, that Satan is the whisper. He's not the powerful demonic force throwing fireballs. He's the whisper. And we need to make sure that we're hearing the voice of God much, much more clearly. Yeah. 
All right, buddy. I know you got other things to get on to. You got some Bible studies. I've got some work to do here. But any closing thoughts for our guests today, Brian? No, just understand the devices of the devil. Understand what he uses to get to you. We're not ignorant of them. We know what they are. And if we can stand ready for it, he'll flee. If we resist him, he'll flee. All right, buddy. Once again, we are your hosts for Biblically Speaking, the podcast. Thanks for being with us today. And as always, have a good day and God bless.